Section 2 of Quiet Talks About Jesus by S. D. Gordon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Part 1 The Purpose of Jesus. Subpart 1 The Purpose in Jesus' Coming. God Spelling Himself Out in Jesus. Jesus is God spelling Himself out in language that man can understand. God and man used to talk together freely. But one day man went away from God. And then he went farther away. He left home. He left his native land, Eden, where he lived with God. He emigrated from God. And through going away, he lost his mother tongue. A language always changes away from its native land. Through going away from his native land, man lost his native speech. Through not hearing God speak, he forgot the sounds of the words. His ears grew dull and then deaf. Through lack of use, he lost the power of speaking the old words. His tongue grew thick. It lost its cunning. And so, gradually, almost all the old meanings were lost. God has always been eager to get to talking with man again. The silence is hard on him. He is hungry to be on intimate terms again with his old friend. Of course, he had to use a language that man could understand. Jesus is God spelling himself out so man can understand. He is the A and the Z and all between of the old Eden language of love. Naturally enough, man had a good bit of bother in spelling Jesus out. This Jesus was something quite new. When his life spoke the simple language of Eden again, the human heart, with selfishness ingrained, said, That sounds good. But of course, he has some selfish scheme behind it all. This purity and simplicity and gentleness can't be genuine. Nobody yet seems to have spelled him out fully, though they are all trying, all on the spelling bench, that is, all that have heard. Great numbers haven't heard about him yet. But many, ah, many could get enough, yes, can get enough, to bring his purity into their lives and sweet peace into their hearts. But there were in his days upon earth some sticklers for the old spelling forms. Not the oldest, mind you. Jesus alone stands for that. This Jesus didn't observe the idioms that had grown up outside of Eden. These people had decided that these old forms were the only ones acceptable and so they disliked him from the beginning and quarreled with him. These idioms were dearer to them than life, that is, than his life. So having quarreled, they did worse, and then softly, worst. But even in their worst, Jesus was God spelling himself out in the old simple language of Eden. His best came out in their worst. Some of the great nouns of the Eden tongue, the God tongue, he spelled out big. He spelled out purity, the natural life of Eden, and obedience, the rhythmic harmony of Eden, and peace, the sweet music of Eden, and power, the mastery and dominion of Eden, and love, the throbbing heart of Eden. It was in biggest, brightest letters that love was spelled out. He used the biggest capitals ever known, and traced each in a deep, dripping red, with a new spelling. S-A-C-R-I-F-I-C-E. 
Jesus is God, following us up. You see, the heart of God had been breaking, is breaking over the ways things have been going down on this planet. Folk fail to understand Him. Worse yet, they misunderstand Him and feel free to criticize Him. Nobody has been so much slandered as God. Many are utterly ignorant of Him. Many others who are not ignorant yet ignore Him. They turn their faces and backs. Some give Him the cut direct. The great crowd in every part of the world is yearning after Him, piteously, pathetically, most often speechlessly yearning, blindly groping along with an intense inner tug after Him. They know the yearning. They feel the inner upward tug. They don't understand what it is for which they yearn, nor what will satisfy. For man was made to live in closest touch with God. That is his native air. Out of that air his lungs are badly affected. This other air is too heavy. It's malarial, and full of gases and germy dust. In it he chokes and gasps, yet he knows not why. He gropes about in the night made by his own shut eyes. He doesn't seem to know enough to open them. And sometimes he will not open them. For the hinge of the eyelid is in the will. And having shut the light out, he gets tangled up in his ideas as to what is light. He puts darkness for light and light for darkness. Once man knew God well, close up. And that means loved, gladly, freely. For here to know is to love. But one day a bad choice was made, and the choice made an ugly kink in his will. The whole trouble began there. A man sees through his will. That is his medium for the transmission of light. If it be twisted, his seeing, his understanding, is twisted. The twist in the will regulates the twist in the eye. Both ways, too for a good change in the will, in turn changes the eyes back to seeing straight. He that is willing to do the right shall clearly see the light. But that first kink seems to have been getting worse kinked ever since, and so man does not see God as he is. Man is cross-eyed Godward, but doesn't know it. Man is colorblind toward God. The blue of God's truth is to him an arousing, angering red. The soft, soothing green of his love becomes a noisy, irritating yellow. Nobody has been so much misunderstood as God. He has suffered misrepresentation from two quarters, his enemies and his friends. More from which? Hard to tell. Jesus is God trying to tell men plainly what he is really like. The world turned down the wrong lane and has been going that way pell-mell ever since. Yet so close is the wrong lane to the right that a single step will change lanes. Though many results of being in the wrong lane will not be changed by the change of lanes, it takes time to rest up the feet made sore by the roughness of the wrong lane, and some of the scars where men have measured their length seem to stay. The result of that wrong turning has been pitiable. Separation from God, so far as man could make separation, there is no separation on God's part. He has never changed. He remains in the world, but because of man's turning his face away, he remains as a stranger, unrecognized. He remains just where man left him. 
and anyone going back to that point in the road will find him standing waiting with an eager light glistening in his eyes. No, that's not accurate. He is a bit nearer than ever he was. He is following us up. He is only a step off. Jesus is God eagerly following us up. The Early Eden Picture But one will never get to understand this Jesus until he gets a good look at man as he was once and as he is now. The key to understanding Jesus is man, even as Jesus is the key to God. One must use both keys to get into the inner heart of God. To get hold of that first key, one must go back to the start of things. The old book of God opens with a picture that is fascinating in its simplicity and strength. There is an unfallen man. He is fresh from the hand of God, free of scar and stain, and shriveling influence. He is in a garden. He is walking hand in hand with God, and working side by side with God, friendship and partnership, friends in spirit, partners in service. The distinctive thing about the man is that he is like God. He and God are alike. In this he differs from all creation. He is God's link between himself and his creation. Particular pains is taken by repetition and change of phrase to make clear and emphatic that it was in the very image of God that man was made. Just what does this mean, that we men were made in God's likeness? Well, the thing has been discussed back and forth a good bit. Probably we will not know fully till we know as we are known. In the morning when we see Him, we shall be like Him fully again. Then we'll know. That morning sun will clear up a lot of fog. But a few things can be said about it now with a positiveness that may clear the air a bit and help us recognize the dignity of our being and behave accordingly. Man came into being by the breath of God. God breathed himself into man. The breath that God breathed out came into man as life. The very life of man is a bit of God. Man is of the essence of God. Every man is the presence chamber of God. God is a spirit. Man is a spirit. He lives in a body. He thinks through a mind. He is a spirit, using the body as a dwelling place and the mind as his keenest instrument. All the immeasurable possibilities and capacities of spirit being are in man. God is an infinite spirit. That is, we cannot understand Him fully. He is very close to us. The relationship is most intimate and tender. Yet His fullness is ever beyond our grasp and our ken. Man is infinite in that he knows that God is infinite. Only like can appreciate like. He can appreciate that he cannot appreciate God except in part. He understands that he does not understand God save in smaller part. He knows enough to love passionately, and through loving as well as through knowing, he knows that there is infinitely more that he does not know. Only man of all earth's creation knows this. In this he is like God. The difference between God and man here is in the degree of infinity. That degree of difference is an infinite degree. Yet this is the truth. But more yet, man has the same quality manward. 
He is infinite in that he cannot be fully understood, in his mental processes and motives. He is beyond grasp fully by his fellow. Everyone's most intimate friend who knows most and best must leave unknown more than is known. God is an eternal spirit. He has always lived. He will live always. He knows no end at either end. All time before there was time and after the time book is shut is to him a passing present. Man is an eternal spirit because of God. He will know no end. He will live always because the breath of God is his very being. God is love. He yearns for love. He loves. And more, he is love. Man is like God in his yearning for love, in his capacity for love, and in his lovableness. Man must love. He lives only as he loves. True love, and only that, is the real life. He will give up everything for love. He is satisfied only as he loves and finds love. To love is greater than to be loved. One cannot always have both. God does not. But everyone may love. Everyone does love. And only as there is love, pure and true, however overlaid with what is not so, only so is there life. God is holy. That word seems to include purity and righteousness. There is utter absence of all that should not be. There is in Him all that should be, and that in fullness beyond our thinking. Man was made holy. There is in the Genesis picture of Eden a touch that for simplicity and yet for revealing the whole swing of moral action is most vivid. In the presence of conditions where man commonly, universally, the world around and time through has been and is most sensitive to, suggestion of evil. There is with this first man the utter absence of any thought of evil. In the light of after history there could be no subtler, stronger statement than this of his holiness, his purity at this stage. And in his capacity for holiness, in that intensest longing for purity and loathing of all else that comes as the Spirit of God is allowed sway, is revealed again the capacity for God-likeness. It is the prophetic dawn within of that coming Eden where again we shall see his face and have the original likeness fully restored. God is wise, all wise. Among the finest passages of the Christian classic are those that represent God as personified wisdom. And here wisdom includes all knowledge and justice. That the Spirit of God breathed into man his own mental life is stated most keenly by the man who proverbially embodied in himself this quality of wisdom. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching out the innermost parts. The allusion is clearly to intellectual powers. There is in man the same quality of mental keenness that searches into things as is in God. It is often dulled, gripped by a sort of stupor, so overlaid you would hardly guess it was there. But too, as we all know, it often shines out with a startling brilliance. It is less in degree than with God, but it is the same thing, a bit of God in man. This explains man's marvelous achievements in literature, in invention, in science, and in organization. Two light master strokes of the etching point in the Eden picture reveal the whole mental equipment of the man. 
The only sayings of Adam's preserved for us are when God brought to him the woman. She is the occasion for sayings that reveal the mental powers of this first man. Fittingly, it is so. Woman, when true to herself, has ever been the occasion for bringing out the best in man. And the man said, This time it is the bone of my bones, and the flesh of my flesh. This shall be called woman, because out of man was this one taken. Therefore doth a man leave his father and his mother, and cleave unto his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Here is revealed at a glance the keen mental powers at work. Here is the simplicity of statement that marks the speech of strong men. The whole forest is in a single acorn. The whole of a human life is in the primal cell. The chemist knows the whole body by looking into one drop of blood. Here is revealed in one glance the whole man. Mark the keen sense of fitness in the naming of woman, the last and highest creation. Adam was a philologist. His mind was analytical. Inferentially, the same keen sense of fitness guided in all the names he had chosen. Here is recognition of the plan for the whole race, a simple unlabored foresight into its growth. A man's relation to his wife, his God-chosen friend as being the closest of life, and above all others is recognized together with the consequent obligation upon him. She comes first of all. She becomes the first of all his relationships, the man and the woman, one man and one woman, united, make the true unit of society. Any disturbance of that strikes at the very vitals of society. And God is a sovereign, the sovereign of the vast swing of worlds. Man likewise is a sovereign in the realm of nature and over all the lower creation. He was given dominion, kingship over all the earth creation. Man is a king. He is of the blood royal. He was made to command, to administrate, to reign. He is the judge of last appeals on the bench of earth. But there is more here. The chief characteristic of an absolute sovereign is the imperial power to choose, to decide. Man was made an absolute sovereign in his own will. God is the absolute sovereign. He has made man an absolute sovereign in one realm, that of his will, his power of choice. There is one place where man reigns alone, an absolute autocrat, where not even God can come save as the autocrat desires it, that is in his will. And if that can bother you, remember that it was God's sovereign act that made it so, so that God remains sovereign in making man a sovereign in the realm of his will. There every man sits in imperial solitude. Here, then, is the picture of man fresh from the hand of God, a spirit in a body, with an unending life, partly infinite like God, in his capacity for love, for holiness and wisdom, with the gift of sovereignty over the lower creation, and in his own will, like him too in his capacity for fellowship with God. For only like can have fellowship with like. It is only in that in which we are alike that we can have fellowship. These two, God and man, walking side by side, working together, friendship in spirit, partnership in service. This man is in a garden of trees and bushes, with fruit and flowers and singing birds, roses with no prickling thorns, 
soft green with no weeds and no poison ivy, for there is no hate. And he is walking with God, talking familiarly as chosen friend with choicest friend. Together they work in the completion of creation. God brings his created beings one by one to man to be catalogued and named, and accepts his decisions. What a winsome picture, these two, God and man, in his likeness, walking and working, side by side, likeness in being, friendship, fellowship in spirit, partnership, comradeship in service, and this is God's thought for man. Man's Bad Break Then come the climax and the crisis. A climax is the climbing to the top rung of the ladder. A crisis is the meeting place of possible victory and possible disaster. A single step divides between the two, the precipice height and the canyon's yawning gulf. It was a climax of opportunity and a crisis of action, God's climax of opportunity to man. Man's crisis of action. God made man sovereign in his power of choice. Now he would go to the last step and give him the opportunity of using that power and so reaching the topmost levels. God led man to the hill of choice. The man must climb the hill if he would reach its top. Only the use of power gives actual possession of the power. What we do not use, we lose. The pressure of the foot is always necessary to a clear title. To him that hath possible power shall be given actual power through use. This opportunity was the last love touch of God in opening up the way into the fullness of His image. With His ideal for man, God went to His limit in giving the power. He could give the power of choice. Man must use the power given. Only so could he own what had been given. God could open the door. Man must step over the sill. Action realizes power. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was the tree of choice. Obedience to God was the one thing involved. That simply meant, as it always means, keeping in warm touch with God. All good absolutely is bound up in this, obeying God, keeping in warm touch. To obey Him is the very heart of good. All evil is included in disobeying Him. To disobey, to fail to obey, is the seeded core of all evil. Whichever way He chose, He would exercise His godlike power of choice. Whichever way He chose, the knowledge would come. If he chose to obey, he would know good by choosing it and evil by rejecting it. He knew neither good nor evil, for he had not yet had the contact of choice. Knowledge comes only through experience. In choosing not to obey, choosing to disobey, he would know evil with a bitter intimacy by choosing it he would become acquainted with the good which he had shoved ruthlessly away. With the opportunity came the temptation, God's opportunity, Satan's temptation. Satan is ever on the heels of God. Two inclined planes lead out of every man's path. 
two doors open into them side by side. God's door up, the tempter's door down, and only a door jamb between. Here the split hoof can be seen sticking from under the cloak's edge at the very start. Satan hates the truth. He is afraid of it. Yet he sneaks around the sheltering corner of what he fears and hates. The sugar coating of his gall, pills, he steals from God. The devil, barefaced, standing only on his own feet, would be instantly booted out at first approach. And right well he knows it. A cunning half-lie opens the way to a full-fledged lie, but still coupled with a half-truth. The suggestion that God was harshly prohibiting something that was needful leads to the further suggestion that He was arbitrarily, selfishly holding back the highest thing, the very thing He was supposed to be giving, that is, likeness to Himself. Eve was getting a course in suggestion. This was the first lesson. The school seems to be in session still. The whole purpose is to slander God, to misrepresent Him. That has been Satan's favorite method ever since. God is not good. He makes cruel prohibitions. He keeps from us what we should have. It is passing strange how every one of us has had that dust in his eyes. Some of us might leave the had out of that sentence. See how cunningly the truth and the lie are interwoven by this old past master in the sooty art of lying. Your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. It was true because by the use of this highest power of choice he would become like God, and through choosing he would know. It is cunningly implied with a sticky, slimy cunning that by not eating that likeness and knowledge would not come. That was the lie. The choice either way would bring both this element of likeness to God in the sovereign power of choice and the knowledge. Then came the choice. The step up was a step down, up into the use of His highest power, down by the use of that power. In that wherein He was most like God in power, man became most unlike God in character. First the woman chose, then the man. Satan subtly begins his attack upon the woman. Because she was weaker? Certainly not. Because she was the stronger? Not the leader in action, but the stronger in influence. He is the leader in action, she in influence. The greater includes the less. Satan is a master strategist, bold in his cunning. If the citadel can be gotten, all is won. If he could get the woman, he would get the man. She includes him. She who was included in him now includes him. The last has become the first. She was deceived. He was not deceived. The woman chose unwarily for the supposed good. The man chose with open eyes for the woman's sake. Could the word gallantry be used? Was it supposed friendship? He would not abandon her, yet he proved not her friend that day in stepping down to this new low level. 
Man's habit of giving smoothly spoken words to woman, while shying sharp-edged stones at her, should in all honesty be stopped. Man can throw no stones at woman. If the woman failed God that day, the man failed both God and the woman. If it be true that through her came the beginning of the world's sin, through her too, be it gratefully and reverently remembered, came that which was far greater, the world's Saviour. The choice was made, the act was done. Tremendous act. Bring your microscope and peer with awe into that single act. No fathoming line can sound its depth, no measuring rod its height nor breadth. No thought can pierce its intensity. That reaching arm went around a world, millenniums in a moment, a million miles in a step, an ocean in a drop, volumes in a word, a race in a woman, a hell of suffering in an act, the depths of woe in a glance. The first chapter of Romans in Genesis 3, 6. Sharpest pain in softest touch. God mistrusted, distrusted. Satan embraced sin's door open. Eden's gate shut. Mark keenly the immediate result that came with that intense rapidity possible only to mental powers. At once they were both conscious of something that had not entered their thoughts before. To the pure all things are pure. To the imagination hurt by breaking away from God, the purest thing can bring up suggestions directly opposite. Through the open door of disobedience came with lightning swiftness the suggestion of using a pure, holy function of the body in a way and for a purpose not intended. Making an end of that which was meant to be only a means to a highest end, degrading to an animal pleasure that which held in its pure hallowed power the whole future of the race. There is absolutely no change save in the inner thought. But what a horrid heredity in that one flash of the imagination. Every sin lives first in the imagination. The imagination is sin's brooding and birthplace, an inner picture, a lingering glance, a wrong desire, an act, that is the story of every sin. The first step was disobedience. That opened the door. The first suggestion of wrongdoing that followed hot on the heels of that first step through that open door struck at the very vitals of the race, both its existence and its character. That first suggested a natural action with its whole brood has become the commonest and slimiest sin of the race. Here, in the beginning, the very thought shocked them. In that lay their safety. Shame is the recoil of God's image from the touch of sin. Shame is sin's first checkmate. It is man's vantage for a fresh pull-up. There are only two places where there is no shame, where there is no sin, where sin is steeped deepest in. The extremes are always jostling elbows. Instantly, the sense of shame suggested a help. A simple bit of clothing was provided. It was so adjusted as to help most. Clothing is man's badge of shame. The first clothing was not for the body, but for the mind. Not for protection, but for concealment. That so the mind might be helped to forget its evil suggestions. It is one of sin's odd perversions that draws attention by color and cut to the race's badge of shame. 
it would seem strongly suggestive of moral degeneracy or of bad taste, or, let us say in charity, of a lapse of historical memory. Mark the sad soliloquy of God. Behold, the man has become as one of us. He has exercised his power of choice. He tenderly refrains from saying, and has chosen wrong, so pitiably wrong. That was plain enough. He would not rub in the acid truth. He would not make the scar more hideous by pointing it out. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life. Lest! There is a further danger threatening. In his present condition, he needs guarding for his own sake in the future. Lest! Wrong choice limits future action. Sin narrows. With man's act of sin came God's act of saving. Satan is ever on the heels of God to hurt man. But God is ever on the heels of Satan to cushion the hurt and save the man. It is a nip-and-tuck race with God ahead and a heart in the lead. Something had to be done. Man had started sin in himself by his choice. The taint of disobedience, rebellion, had been breathed out into the air. He had gotten out of sorts with his surroundings. His presence would spoil his own heaven. The stain of his sin would have been upon his eternal life. The zero of selfishness would have been the atmosphere of his home. The touch of his unhallowed hand must be taken away for his own sake. That unhallowed touch has been upon every function and relationship of life outside those gates. Nothing has escaped the slimy contact. Sin could not be allowed to stay there. Its presence stole heaven away from heaven. Yet sin had become a part of the man. The man and the wrong were interwoven. They were inseparable. Sin had such a tenacious, gluey, sticky touch. Each included the other. It could not be put out without his being put out. So man had to be driven out for his own sake to rid his home spot of sin. The man was driven out that he might come back, changed. Love drove him out that later it might let him in. The tree of life was kept from him for a time, that it might be kept for him for an eternity. When he had changed his spirit, and changed sides in the fight with evil started that day, and gotten victory over the spirit now dominant within himself, those gates would swing again. When the stain of his choice would be taken out of his fibre, it would be his right eagerly to retrace these forced steps, and the coming back would find more than had been left. Love has been busy planning the homecoming. The tree of life has been grown in his absence to a grove of trees. The life has become life more abundant. End of Section 2 Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.